Matthew, in the first paragraphs of his letter, launches with these words. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. So he, he lets us know up front, as a Jewish man, that he believed that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. Now, this word Messiah is actually a Hebrew word. Does anybody know what the Greek equivalent is? They think it's Jesus' last name, Christ. Jesus Christ. So see, it wasn't Joseph and Mary Christ and, you know, like Jesus Christ. It was, this was a Greek term for the Hebrew term that meant Messiah, the one that the Jews had been waiting for a long, long time. And I don't want to make Christmas too complicated, but I'm going to. Here's something very important for the Christmas story. The term Jesus is actually a Latin term, a Latin translation of the Greek name for the Hebrew name Yeshua. <laughs> So let's just say that again. The, 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 the term Jesus is actually a Latin translation of the Greek name for the Hebrew name, Yeshua. The Hebrews and the Greeks, they don't have the letter J, so that's, it's like, so that's where we get Joshua, but they didn't have a J, so it's Yeshua or Yahshua. And so perhaps the reason God isn't answering your prayers is you've been mispronouncing his name all this time. Uh, it's like, look, I'll answer your prayers as soon as you can get my son's name right, all right? Uh, now we're going to stick with Jesus, but to understand the significance of what happens in the Christmas narrative, you need to understand that Jesus was really Joshua. Now who was Joshua? Joshua was a warrior. He was a general. He was a military man, and the ancient Jews were waiting for a warrior king, a warrior messiah that would come and deliver the people from their oppressors. So here is how the Christmas story goes. Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit, which gives us context for Joseph's reaction, because let's just be honest, it was going to be clear to everyone that Mary was a little bit crazy. Okay, her parents are going to go, you're pregnant. Well, which boy in the neighborhood? Oh, no, mother, there's been no man. An angel appeared to me, and God did it. Now, God got me pregnant. It's just like, so Joseph finds out Mary's pregnant, and supposedly that an angel told her that uh, God did it, and you can't very well burn or stone a crazy person. So it's like, what do I do? And Matthew tells us that Joseph, her husband, her future husband, her fiancé, was faithful to the law. And the law said we must shame her or burn her, have her stoned to death. But you can't very well do that to a crazy person. And he didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. So Joseph is caught between law and grace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly, which he could do in that, in that culture, uh, because being engaged was legally binding, like being married. But Joseph could go to a priest and say, I'd like to break this contract that I have with her family. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, that's King David. So the angel's reminding him of his lineage, which is important to the story. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because it was a small community. Everybody knew everybody's business. So his reputation was on the line, potentially his livelihood. He says, because what is conceived of her in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, the really important part of this narrative is that no one was expecting a virgin birth, that somehow the Messiah wouldn't have an earthly father. In fact, it was the opposite. For the Jewish people, the ancient Jews, they expected that he would have an earthly father that was somehow related to King David. And here's the other thing. Making this stuff up doesn't help the story at all. Like, so if you're kind of skeptical, if you see manger scenes, it's kind of like, oh, these crazy Christians, they actually believe these fairy tales. Here's the thing. For anyone to have manufactured the story of the virgin birth does not help the storyline. It hurts it because it's weird. 
Okay? If you're trying to make up some new religion that you want people to buy into, you just leave this out. So the only reason, practically speaking, that this would be included in the narrative is because it's true. Because at the end, you didn't have people going after, the, after the, his death going, well, we can keep the dream alive because of the virgin birth. Nobody said that. In fact, it hurts the story more than it helps it. So Matthew would never have made this up. So Matthew tells us that an angel appears to Mary and to Joseph in a dream, says the son will be conceived, is conceived of the Holy Spirit, and he's going to be special. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name. And then the music changes, and the background music begins to get back. The soundtrack gets big. Yeshua, because he will save his people. And Joseph, he's thinking, well, of course Joshua is going to save his people. He's going to save his people from the oppressors, from the invaders, from the Roman occupation. And we've, we've heard this story hundreds of times since we were children. But for Joseph, like this first time hearing it, I can't believe that my son is going to be the one. We'd start, started to give up hope. We'd started to think that God had forgotten about us. And finally, God is going to send his, our long-awaited Messiah, Yeshua, the warrior king. And he says, and he will save their people from their sins. It's like, okay, I know you're an angel and everything, and we need to be saved from a lot of things, but sin doesn't even make the list. In fact, we've got a temple that we can go to anytime we want to be saved from our sins. What we need saving from is Rome, not sin. But Joseph didn't respond this way. Why? Because if you have an actual angel talking to you, you just don't respond that way. So when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took Mary home to be his wife. Now, here's what I want to talk about in, in just a few minutes as we wrap up what's been actually a series. Why Christmas? Do you know why so many of us that we're not moved when we hear that God sent Jesus to save us from our sin? Do you know why we don't just light up and feel emotional about that? Why, you know, that God sent Jesus to save us from our sin? Because it's not a felt need. We don't really have this felt need. In fact, uh, like, it, perhaps your entire Christian or religious experience has been, I, I, you know, I've got a, need, a lot of needs. I've got a lot of things I need to be saved from. Especially maybe this time of year. Maybe this year has been like, I've, I've been dealing with anxiousness. I've been dealing with depression, with stress, with pressure, financial pressure, relational pressure, raising small humans pressure, whatever it is. So God, there's a lot of things that I need to save from, that I feel I need to save from. Sin is one of them. And maybe for many of you, your Christian experience has basically been, you know, nobody's perfect, but God forgives. So maybe it is that you recognize there's things in my life like that I should or shouldn't do or whatever, you know, but, but I mess up and God forgives me. I mess up and God forgives me. I mess up and God forgives me. And it's just kind of this endless cycle until we die. But nothing really changes. And for many people, that's their entire religious experience. But the message of Christmas and the Gospels is so much bigger than that. Because the message of Christmas isn't that, isn't that Jesus came to deliver us simply from the penalty and the consequences of sin. In fact, in most cases, we're not delivered from the consequences of sin, are we? I mean, there's some things that you and I have said and done in our past, and to this day we feel regret about it. 
You have done things in the past that have negatively affected the trajectory of your life. And you're still dealing with the consequences of those words or those actions. Some of you, like me, some of you have hurt others in such a way that it has shaped a relationship or even blew up a relationship to this day. Maybe it's why the holidays for some of you is extra messy with some of the people you gather with or that you don't gather with. Jesus didn't simply come to deliver us from the ultimate consequences of sin. He came in the spirit of Joshua, the warrior who came to free you and to free me from the power of sin in our lives because he provides a new way of living, a new way of loving, a new way of thinking. And Jesus alluded to this throughout his ministry. For example, most of us are familiar with a very powerful story of a woman who's caught in the act of adultery. It, start, it starts horrible. The religious leaders somehow find her, and wanting to trap Jesus, they drag this woman through the streets of Jerusalem to the last place that she wants to be, the temple. And she's caught in the act of adultery. Now she's humiliated by being dragged to the temple mount into the middle of a huge crowd. They throw her down, probably barely clothed, at the feet of Jesus, and they say this, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law says that we are to stone her. What do you say? say. And it would have been dead quiet. And they waited, and this moment is so dramatic, and in a powerful moment, Jesus calls their bluff. Fine. Stoner. One caveat. Those of you who have not committed sin, you start the execution. And everything was quiet and still. One, as most of you know, they all go away. And then he kneels down next to this woman and looks her in the eye and he says two things to her. One famous, one not so famous. He says to her, what I fully expect was in a tone of the deepest compassion. Woman, where are your accusers? She says they've all left. And then God, in a body, imagine this moment. Jesus looks her directly in the eyes and maybe with a smile on his face says, then neither do I condemn you. I, who have the power, right here in the temple, like we don't need to go over there and sacrifice an animal for you. You are looking at the Lamb of God. I don't condemn you. And that's the famous part. And then he said the part that we skip over. Jesus looked at her and said, now go and leave your life of sin. To which we ask, is, like, is, is that possible? For any of us who have been Christians for a while, it's like, is that possible? Can we actually leave our lives of sin? Can we sin no more? Can we say no to sin? Jesus talking to the Pharisees makes this incredible statement. He says, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I have come for a very different purpose. I have come that they and you might have life and have it to the full. That sounds bigger than forgiveness, Right? Because forgiveness just gets me back to zero. He says, I've come to do more than forgive you of sin. I've come to free you from sin. But again, we, like in our experience, like, is that possible? Later, the Apostle Paul, he'd come along and he'd 
theological language to apply what he realized that Jesus, the purpose of Jesus' coming was. Here's what he says to a letter written to Christians living in Rome at a time where being a Christian in Rome and under Nero was not a good experience. He writes, therefore, and then he gives us this command, which implies that he thinks that it's possible. He says, therefore, do not let Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Do not allow sin to continue to be your king or your master so that you obey its evil desires. It's like, so we have a choice? Yes, you have a choice. It's why Jesus came, to deliver you and to deliver us from our sin. He goes on, and and don't offer any part of of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, which means... There's an option. There's another way, which means that if your entire Christian experience has been to sin, get forgiveness, sin, get forgiveness, sin, get forgiveness, perhaps you've missed part of the reason that Jesus came. Paul says, but rather offer yourselves a a decision not to sin, but offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourselves to him as an instrument of righteousness. When Jesus says that I have come that you might have life and have it to the full, this isn't just about being forgiven of sin. In fact, in this writing, Paul personifies sin like a character or a power or a force or a thing. And he says this this is about being set free from the power of sin, for sin shall no longer be your master. And again, if it's like, well, what what does this mean? It's very easy. It's what you and I experience every single day where there's two of you. And you're going, I want to, but I don't want to. I want to, but I shouldn't. I, I, I want to, I, I shouldn't, but I'm going to do it anyway. What's going on? Paul says, look, it's, it's not that complicated. Just call that sin. He says, sin is no longer your master if you are in Christ uh, not long ago, a couple of years ago, actually, I, I did a message. I talked about what it looks like to, be, to become in Christ, to put your faith and your trust in Christ. And as part of the exercise, uh, many of you were there, and I know because your names are in here, you guys had these balls, and it might seem so s- simple or silly or whatever, but it, it was just an opportunity to have a visual to put your name on here and ultimately what it looks like to be in Christ. And for those of you that were there, you, you don't know this, but this actually sits on the desk of my office every day because it makes me, it reminds me of you every day and the fondness that I have, the care that I have, and the fact that I'm, I'm in here with you. And then once you're in Christ, you're in Christ irrevocably. And Paul says, sin's not your master anymore. You're, you're in Christ. He summarizes it with this, for the wages, for the wages or the outcome or the consequences or the result of sin is death. You've heard that word a million times, sin. What is sin? Sin is to, what was it? I thought we were going to have a good answer. Sin is to choose self-desire first. It's to put yourself first. It's to choose self-desire first. Sin is, I give in to my appetite that I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to do it the way I want. I'm going to do it when I want, with whom I want. It's, it's my life. I'm the boss of me. Or we might say that, God, I'll let you, you be the boss of me in these other areas, but these two or three areas, like, I'm going to be that. What you're ultimately still doing is going, I'm God, you're not. I'm the boss, you're not. Because I'm going to tell you, God, what areas you can dabble in and which ones you can't. 
And see, you don't even have to be a Christian or a theist to, un- to understand sin kills things. Sin always kills something. Sin is an archery term. It means to miss the mark. The arrow misses the mark, and it hits, harms, or kills something else. Some of you have had trust killed by sin. Some of you have had a relationship killed by sin. Some of you have had your finances or your career killed by lack of self-control or lack of honesty or integrity. Some of you have seen the relationship between you and someone you cared about, maybe even someone you loved, killed by their sin or killed by theirs. Some of you have seen an addiction kill a relationship or literally kill someone that you love. Some of you look in the mirror and you don't like what you see because you know, like, I should, but I don't. Or I know I shouldn't, but I'm gonna. And in the end, your spirit, your soul, your mind, your heart, your mortal body suffers, which in turn affects all the people that you love because wherever there is sin, something always dies. And don't miss this. Even forgiven sin kills things. Our prisons are filled with men and women, many of whom have found hope And God has forgiven them, yet they are going to spend the rest or most of their lives in prison or still be executed because even forgiven sin kills things. And Jesus came into this world not to simply forgive us of sin, but to be the warrior king who could deliver you from the dominion, the power, and the captivity to sin because the wages of sin is something always dies. But the gift of Christmas is, the gift of God is eternal life. And you need to understand, if, when you hear that, you think, that means heaven when I die. You need to know that's not what he's talking about. Because the gift you receive when you place your faith in Jesus Christ is that you are given life right now in this life, in Christ. You receive the gift of God's life, eternal life, new life. This is the gospel. This is Christmas, that through Christ you can have a new master, the Spirit of God in you, which will empower you to break free from that thing that you, it just repeatedly hurts you. It repeatedly hurts the people around you and empower you to live life in love in a new way. And if you are a Christian and your religious experience has simply been trying and failing and getting forgiveness, trying and failing and getting forgiveness, trying and failing and getting forgiveness, you need to hear this. Sin is not your master. Greed is not your master. Lust is not your master. Your lack of self-control in some area of your life is not your master. Alcohol is not your master. Prescription drugs are not your master. Your anger is not your master. Your impatience or jealousy is not your master. Your habit or your insecurity is not your master. Now you may live as if it's your master. You may say yes and treat it like it's your master. But the good news is sin is not your master. Jesus and the New Testament writers explain how God can help us set set us free in this life. But the reason most of us don't truly experience that freedom is because we're afraid. And what I mean is what Jesus and those who followed him teach us is that one of the biggest things that God uses to set us free from captivity to sin, from the darkness, is to bring it into the light. And what that tangibly looks like is confession, restitution, forgiveness, and interdependence. But that terrifies us because we fear embarrassment or we fear the fallout 
of being honest about the way sin has its hooks in us. Because, and especially us men, but really all of us, we want others to admire us and think well of us and respect us, don't we? But the problem is, if we're not careful, we become fakers. We pretend to be and portray ourselves to be better than we are, including to the people who are closest to us. And by trying to keep others in the dark about who we truly are, it's like mold. And it just thrives in dark places, and it just grows and grows and grows and becomes more toxic and more toxic and more toxic because we're afraid to drag it out into the light where it can finally be dealt with once and for all. No one's excited about a surgery they need, but something needs to be cut away or cut out because it's slowly killing us. And the initial process can be scary and painful, and even the recovery afterwards can feel painful. But in the end, it brings healing. Jesus talks about his followers carrying our cross and its imagery of dying to self to live for something else, to the, dying to the illusion of self-preservation so that we can actually have the life that Jesus has offered to us and to have it in the full. For many years, I had a poster on, my, on the door of my office that said that the cross we carry is never as heavy as the chains from which we were freed. Jesus came to set you and I free, but we have a part in that. We have to accept it. In fact, just yesterday, Sean and I were, ta- were talking with our adult children about some, just addressing some things in our own lives, areas that we feel are unhealthy physically, mentally, spiritually. So we're doing something about it because our appetites, sin is not our master. And as we get close to a new year, I want that for each of you. And if you're not a Christian, let me just say this to you. Sin does not have to be your master either. And if you ever get fed up with being your own worst enemy, tired of being dragged down and having personal sin hit hurt you and hurt those that you love. You don't call it sin. You call it lack of self-control. I just make mistakes, you know, whatever it is. But if you just get fed up with that thing in you that seems to control you to, to, to where you just say, like the apostle once wrote, like, I just don't understand the good things I want to do, I don't do, but the things that hurt me or hurt others, I, these are the things that I do and keep repeating, if you ever get fed up with those little and big levels of self-destruction that you bring on yourself and the habits that can or do or will hurt relationships with the people you love the most, I have some great news. Christmas is a standing invitation from your Father in heaven and mine, inviting you into a relationship where sin no longer has to be your master, your offered new life. So why Christmas? Because the world needed it. God needed it because he needed a way to demonstrate his love for us that we wouldn't miss. And everyone who wants to finally be saved from their sin needs it. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm just grateful for this season. So grateful for your son. And Father, I just pray for everyone that's listening to me right now that, God, that you would bring them peace in the season, wherever it is that they're not feeling peace. This Christmas is all about the Prince of Peace coming into this world. And not
not just for something after we die, but something that we can experience now. But Father, there are times it can seem so impossible or so far off. And Father, I just pray that you would break through all the chaos and the distractions and, and just the lies that we tell ourselves in our head. And that, Father, we would sense your nearness and presence in our life like, like never before, especially as we move into a brand new year that's just full of opportunities and possibilities. And that, Father, that you would take us into this new year with a momentum that sustains way past the first couple of weeks and into the full year, that we would experience something new in this next year and something wonderful. So, Father, I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.